seriously popular. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. This is the podcast where we put royal experts on the sofa, turn on the crown and tell you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. I'm joined on this and every episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction by Robert Hardman, royal biographer and Daily Mail columnist. Hello. Along the way, we hope to have crew members join us to talk about making the show. But for our debut, we're settling down in our little studio and opening the popcorn. So, Robert, before we start viewing episode one, do you have high hopes for series six? Well, I think it's clearly it's going to be a huge story as series one to five have been. There's plenty about the previous episodes that I don't like, but we can't dispute the fact that this is a global broadcasting phenomenon. Full disclosure, I'm sort of relatively new to the Royal Bee, and I have to say I've been surprised by the real strength of feeling people have about the crown, the kind of, you know, maybe normal members of the public just kind of like it, you know, mild dislike. But within the royal world, it's fair to say people do have strong views, don't they? They do. And I think those views have grown stronger the closer we've come to the present day. I mean, at the, at the start of the last series, if you remember, there was a really very loud debate going on because people like John Major, Tony Blair, Judy Dench, all very critical of the liberties that the script was taking because, you know, they were around. They remember what happened at this at the time that's on the screen. And so I think that's going to happen even more so with the new series. I think they've got to tread a very careful tightrope because, you know, sensitivities are still quite raw and they certainly are for the younger members of the royal family, particularly Prince William and for Prince Harry. What's particularly interesting about this series is your direct experience as royal correspondent will mirror what we're going to see. Well, yeah, I mean, I was I was a royal correspondent during this period. I worked alongside all my Fleet Street colleagues, and it was an extraordinary period. It was a time when 
pretty much every day of every year, there will be a royal story on most front pages. And I think it's fair to say things have calmed down a bit since then. Yeah, I mean, that's still crazy for me because it feels like the royal world is always is headline to headline. It still feels like so much controversy all of the time. But yes, when you look back, it's it's kind of another world. I mean, I was born in 1998. So to see everything that happened with Diana, for me, that's kind of always been defined history, a certainty that is something I grew up with, whereas, mm. we're, you know, the period we're going to be watching now and that you obviously were, were right at the front of history for, it was, you know, it was a huge shock for everyone. Well, what we're watching, what we're about to watch, where we got up to with the Love series is the middle of 1997. And, and I think what people need to remember, if they haven't watched the series for a while, or indeed have never watched it before, is that this series comes after five pretty bleak years for the monarchy, really starting back in 92, with what they call the Annus Horribilis, what the Queen called her Annus Horribilis, with Windsor Castle burning down, royal divorces. So where we are now is quite a way into what was undoubtedly the low point of the Queen's reign. And how true to life do you think the previous series have been? Well, I, you know, the, overall, um, they broadly follow the chronology of royal life since the Second World War. Plenty of mistakes. Some are mistakes that don't really matter so much. People wearing the wrong medals at the wrong place. Some are quite comical. I mean, one or two people popping up several years after they're dead. One or two, I would say, pretty grievous errors, I think, trying to portray the Queen as deliberately trying to undermine the government of Mrs. Thatcher. I think that's that's something that was really very wrong because what we have to remember is in the, in Britain, we do look at this and think, well, it's only a drama and we know all these characters so well anyway. We've got fairly well-defined views of them anyway. But this is a global show. It's huge. When I go around the world and talk to audiences in other countries, everyone wants to ask about the crown. And, and I have to say, for the most part, it's seen as not just pretty much true, but gospel truth. And some people get quite surprised when you say, I'm really sorry, but that's not what happened. Mm. I think there's definitely a danger of that. And I would say on the other side, at least from my generation, I think that one of the biggest problems that the monarchy faces is apathy and the crown generates interest, serious interest. Yes. What it does underline, though, overall, this series is, you know, we live in an age of soft power where influence and persuasion and charm, those sort of things matter a great deal more. And this series underlines the fact that the monarchy is still a great soft power asset. The fact that now 60 hours of very expensive TV drama have been built around one family. And the fact that it is a huge hit and it wins awards and, and it does get discussed around the world. I mean, it's very hard to think of any other British institution that would capture the imagination of the world for so long. Do you think King Charles will be watching? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Well, I think we'd better start watching it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've got, I've got my pen here, um, Natasha. I'm going to be uh, making notes as you are. But I think we should also include a quick spoiler warning. If you don't know or don't want to know what happens in the Crown series six, then I'd come back after you watch the episode. But for everybody else, it's time to sit back and enjoy series six of the Crown, episode one. Well, I think we see there they've pretty much set the scene for what clearly is the central and tragic main point of the series. There is the crash. We don't see it in any detail, but it's 
plainly what is going to be hanging over this series more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, there was much debate and speculation as to how the Crown were going to portray that moment. And I mean, I think that was quite sensitive, but it's still even seeing the car moving at that speed and knowing what they're portraying, it's still pretty, pretty horrifying to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think clearly we're going to come back to this in um, rather more detail in later episodes. Um, but I think there you have it. The Crown is um, making it quite clear uh, what this series is all about. Then we had lunch. She feels strongly that she still has a lot to offer the country as a public servant. As a divorced woman and no longer an HRH, Diana is now learning the difference between being officially in the royal family and out. Well, there we've just seen Diana uh, and Prince William going for lunch at Chequers with Tony Blair. It's now roughly July 1997. He was elected in May. What we've seen there is the princess going to ask for his help to help reshape her post-royal life. And we've seen the Queen rather archly talking about you can only be half in or half out. Now, clearly, that is very much retrofitting the story of Harry and Meghan into the story of Diana and Charles. We do know this lunch happened. I think it was actually at Cherie Blair's invitation, not Tony Blair's. Tony Blair writes about it in his biography, although he gets it slightly wrong because in his biography he talks about how he had a very difficult conversation with Diana about her ongoing affair with Dodie Fayed, which of course hasn't actually yet started. We have to be quite careful about you know what the Crown says, what other sources say. Um, on that one point, though, I do know that at this particular series, the uh, credited consultant is one Alistair Campbell, who was, of course, Tony Blair's press secretary at the time and knew pretty much everything. So I think, you know, we can be reasonably sure that the sort of thrust of it um, is is accurate. There is one point, though, and I'm going to come back to this, so I won't labour it now, but I do think that the Queen really ought to smile more. They just don't get her right, the crown, you know, she's always looking so gloomy. She was a smiley person. Let's see if she smiles a little later on in the show. I'm, I'm not expecting much. Anyway, on we go. It's not for long. It's ten days. Yes, but it's ten days of water skiing and Nerf guns. As much street fighter as you can play. I just wanted us all to be away when your father threw a huge 50th birthday party, if you know who. We've confirmed at least 50 journalists and photographers. What news from my family? It's vital that the Queen attends this weekend. As I understand it, just Princess Margaret has confirmed so far. Well, what we've just seen there is setting a scene, I suspect, for the rest of this episode. Diana and the boys going off on their trip to stay with Mohammed Al-Fayed, as he called himself, the owner of Harrods, who's got a very swanky pad in the south of France. He's invited Diana to bring the boys down. And at the same time, we see Prince of Wales arranging the party he's planning to give in honour of the 50th birthday of Camilla Parker Bowles. But, I mean, already, Natasha, I think we've seen them taking um, pretty rich liberties with the truth. This idea that the Prince of Wales wanted the Queen at this party is for the birds. Why do you think that? (laughs) Well, I mean, he makes a point. You know, he's been divorced for a year, separated for five. I mean, at this point, they're just trying to normalise the relationship. There's absolutely no question of the Queen uh, coming to this party. The idea that the press are being invited 
I can tell you, I didn't get any invitation to that party. It just wasn't like that. The party happened. I certainly don't think it happened in a sort of see-through uh, marquee like that one. We just saw there. That's the last sort of thing Prince Charles would have had. But it was a case of just trying to get things on an even keel. The idea of sort of strategically making this a, a sort of a big royal event was just utter nonsense. One or two things, though, ring true there, um, particularly... Uh, when we saw um, Camilla there saying, oh, look, just let it happen in its own time, or, or words to that effect. I think that was always been her her view, was just to let things take their course. But it's drama. They're, they're setting up what's clearly going to be two very different scenes. One is princess and boys uh, in the south of France versus uh, Charles and Camilla in rainy old Gloucestershire. I think one thing it is showing, though, is it's, it's kind of like, you know, the crown, it almost kind of rhymes. It's not, you know, it's not exactly right. But I guess it's showing that there in that scene is Mark Bolland, who was hired to kind of improve Camilla's coverage in the press. And I think for a lot of people, at least my generation, that is kind of news to them, the kind of spinning that goes on behind the scenes in the sense that, you know, Charles was really willing to support Camilla in that way, in a way that, Diana felt that she didn't get that support. So maybe that's what they're trying to show there, even if the specifics aren't 100% right. No, I think they're getting way ahead of themselves. <laughs> it's very interesting. You look back through the the, 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 the coverage at the time, uh, no one for one minute thought the Queen was ever going to turn up at this party. But they were in the south of France. It's looking very crown-like, isn't it? I mean, the, the, I think we're about to see some really expensive scenery. Yeah, I mean, it currently looks like a luxury designer advert, and yeah, I'm enjoying it. In, in rainy England right now, this is good escapism. Your Royal Highness. Moo Moo. Thank you for having us. Is it really so important I attend? It is, to me. It's just a birthday party. Her 50th. Love, mummy, love. I don't want to debate this any longer. I'm going to be in Derbyshire. There we have another two-parter. The gloss, the sunshine, as Diana and the boys arrive in a very slick speedboat at the fabulous Saint-Tropez uh, villa of, of Mohammed al-Fayed. I think it's actually filmed in Mallorca, I read somewhere, but um, it looks jolly good. Slight, slight touch of the Bond villain, I thought. I don't know about <laughs> you, Natasha. And then, of course, then we cut to... Buckingham Palace, and see the Prince of Wales uh, going around to beg his mother, the Queen, to come to the 50th birthday party he's throwing. I've said it already. I, I don't want to labour the point, but um, it's just nonsense. Some nice little touches there. Did you see that at one point, as he's been kept waiting outside the door, a rat scuttles past? I, I'm not quite sure what the, what the messaging is there, but it's whether it's something to do with sinking ships or just the, the general um, uh, dilapidation of the palace. Yeah, I think it's just giving the feeling that the palace is past its best and therefore also the monarchy, maybe in the writer's view. I don't know. Well, it's it's it's. A, I think we can safely say that if there had been a rat, one of the corgis would have got it. <laughs> um, the, there was always a few corgis prowling around. They did um, look pretty least. chubby, that corgi, don't they? So. Um, but, uh, and, and so there we see Prince Charles saying to his mother, will you come to the party? And she's saying, oh, I can't. I'm going to be in Derbyshire. Now, um, obviously, with I think I counted on the credits uh, of the last series. I think there's something like a dozen um, script consultants on this show. So um, needless to say, they have been back. Uh, through the court circular, and on the day of the party, the Queen was on her way to Derbyshire. Um, 
not just a Rolls Royce, but uh, it was a full sort of away day of the sort she would do. I think she went to a, a hospital and a, a stately home and one or two other things. So, you know, in that regard, the, the timings are about right. Um, there's never any question of um, the Queen going to sort of visit a factory on a Saturday or just moving things because Prince Charles wanted her to. I mean, that, that just shows – these are minor points, but they just show, I would say, a, a slight lack of understanding of the way that um, the, the, the monarchy operates uh, Prince of Wales would have known exactly what the Queen was doing months in advance. She'd have known what he was doing months in advance. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Anyway, but did it ring true to you, Natasha? Well, one thing, one issue it threw up for me, and again, I would be interested in your opinion on this, is it's been reported in the past that when the royal family want to have difficult conversations, they often do it through their private secretaries. And it's easy to imagine why that happens. If, if all of us had staff that you, know, you could just prod them and say, oh, you know, actually, dad needs to wash his trousers. Can you get someone else to tell him rather than me? You would, wouldn't you? That's been kind of thrown up in the past. And that's apparently part of the issues that happen with Harry and Meghan is it's all this sort of communicating through staff rather than just having the conversations themselves. Do you think that at this time, even if this didn't happen exactly then, Charles would have said, you know, let's go past the private secretary. I'm going to have a meeting directly with her. Would that have happened or would he just have gone through I, the staff? I, I think it might well have happened. But I mean, we're now in, in mid-July. In a few days, certainly in a couple of weeks, the royal family are all going to be together up at Balmoral for their, their annual um, summer retreat. Uh, and that would be the moment to have this sort of conversation anyway. So did it happen? Who knows? We haven't a clue, and certainly the writers of the of, of the Crown didn't. But you know, I think they've they found an actual engagement on the same day as Camilla's party. Uh, it wasn't on a Saturday, by the way. The party was on a Friday night. Um, the Queen could have attended, but there was never any any question um, that she would. And and the idea that Charles would have gone round on bended knees, said, "Oh, please come. You know, we need your approbation." Nah, sorry. And crucially, Robert, it. you weren't invited, so it's not worth I watching. I wasn't asked. I wasn't asked. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm feeling in need of some more. I want to see some water skiing, I think, don't you? Yeah, some more, some more sun. Now, obviously, I have some work to do, but I can leave you with his hand. He's much more fun than me. Whatever you wish is his command. So we've just left sunny Saint-Tropez, where we see Dodie being sort of set up, really, by his father with Diana. The kind of slight hitch there is that he has a fiancé. How much of this kind of rings true to what really happened? I think it, it broadly does follow what happened. We don't know precisely what the movements were during that week, but what was clear was that Dodie was engaged to 
an American fiancé, and he was down on the holiday um, with the princess and her boys. Nobody knew that at the time. It wasn't really picked up by the media. So whatever sort of relationship may have developed then, we simply don't know. But I think, you know, dramatically what it does is it is it showing us what a what a rather sort of pitiful figure Dodie Fired was. You know, he's just there doing what his father tells him. I mean, it's setting him up as the tragic figure that he is about to become. I think one thing that we also see, though, in the next scene is Diana sort of playing with the paparazzi. So we don't know if they were there or not. Although there are definitely pictures of her in that leopard print swimming costume, aren't there? There's one of her diving off. I wasn't down there covering, covering that particular holiday, but I remember it very well. She did get in a boat and go over to talk to the British media. I mean, there were, there were a number of different press operations there. I mean, the, the, the most intrusive being the, the French paparazzi who would spend, you know, the summer in Saint-Tropez basically pursuing anybody famous. But that particular week, it was the princess. But she went over to talk to the British press because she knew them. As she said to one of them, I don't speak their language. I can't talk to that lot over there. She was very much asking them to respect the boys' privacy. That was what it was about. She was concerned that they were feeling intruded upon. She did say there's going to be a surprise, words to that effect. But the idea that this was all being done uh, to upstage Camilla's uh, party, there again, um, the chronology doesn't quite fit. I mean, she did have her showdown with the press earlier in the week. It's interesting that on the night of, on the day and the night of Camilla's party itself, she kept a low profile. Um, but yeah, we, what we're seeing is, you know, it's it's all being set up for this media battle. There are these rival attractions, the south of France or Highgrove. Again, not quite like that. But they do make everybody look like a manipulator, don't they? It kind of almost removes the sort of chance of the way things might have happened. You know, Mohammed is clearly being portrayed as manipulating his son, who then is trying to manipulate Diana. And then Diana is manipulating the press, who then are, of course, manipulating her. And really, you think things were probably just much more haphazard at the time. <laughs> exactly. And one thing that is interesting is this just tips into the next scene, which is Camilla at the 50th party. Camilla is depicted here wearing a black dress. And in the contrast to, you know, Diana in the leopard print, and maybe the timelines didn't quite match up. But I was, I thought that maybe they'd got that wrong, kind of putting Camilla in black and making her look, you know, just a bit more demure and sort of in the background. But there were paparazzi pictures at the time where at this party, she did wear a black dress. And I think, I don't know, it just signals that difference of their approaches at the time with the press and that Camilla, I guess, was taking a step back a bit more in the background in contrast to Diana. Do you think the kind of sense of that rings true? Yeah, I mean, we, we see Camilla arriving at Highgrove and the sort of vast media circus is there. It wasn't like that. Um, there were a handful of um, photographers at the Yeah, the sort uh, of the, snap the back with the car. Yeah, there were definitely photographs of, of Mrs. Parker Bowles going into the party but it, the idea that it, that there was a sort of prearranged, I mean, it almost looks like a, a sort of a, a red carpet premiere. But um, yeah, there were, there were press there. They did capture her um, wearing a dress similar to that. <laughs> so well done to the crown. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's, and it's, you know, here we are, we're dissecting the, the, the finer points of, of, of a party that was actually behind closed doors. But I think we're about to see what actually happened as night fell in Gloucestershire. <laughs> <laughs> May I just say how wonderful it is to see you all here and thank you all so much for coming. And particularly, I want to thank my darling aunt, 
Uh, Mrs. Margaret, and uh, Camilla's father, Major Shan. Bruce, as many of you know, is a wine merchant, so he's better placed than anyone else here to tell us what it is to improve with age. So we've just watched Camilla's 50th birthday party, which looked pretty glamorous. It looked pretty fun. We saw them kind of awkwardly dancing away, which I don't know. I've not been at a party with them, so I don't know if that's how they really dance, but they looked like they were having a good time. Then we return to a pretty staid palace where you see the Queen having a conversation with Princess Margaret, who is sort of persuading her, really, of the merits of Charles and Camilla's relationship and trying to persuade the Queen that maybe she should get behind it. And then we see Prince Philip and the Queen having dinner where the Queen kind of seems like she's changing her opinion. She's almost now trying to persuade Philip that maybe Camilla is the love of Charles's life. Do you think that's really how things went? We know the party happened. It certainly didn't happen like that. From my recollection, I don't think the Prince of Wales made a speech. I think it was Camilla's son, Tom, who did the toast. And obviously we've got Princess Margaret there as this sort of device, if you like, this sort of link between the Queen to tell the Queen what's going on. But again, Princess Margaret wasn't at that party. I think this is where the, the, so far this episode has, has taken the most liberties. But, you know, we know the event happened. I think actually what was possibly more interesting about this evening was two people who were there, which was Camilla Parker Bowles, his former husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, and his new wife, Rosemary Pittman. It was it was very much their friends. It was a sort of country set. It was not this absolute pivotal relaunch of Camilla that uh, that, that is it's being framed here. And I'm quite sure it wasn't a see-through marquee. Um, but what we're seeing is a warming, a slight thawing of the Queen towards Camilla. The fact is, actually, she she knew Andrew and Camilla Parker Bowles um, very well of old anyway. The idea that somehow there's a sort of mysterious new woman in Charles's life uh, is, is simply not the case. But, you know, as we keep saying, this is a drama and we're building up to a, what has to be seen as Diana and her new life and Charles and his new life. Uh, and I have a more trivial question. Um, we see the Queen and Philip having dinner, presumably at their home in Buckingham Palace. Philip is in black tie, it looks like, and the Queen is dressed very formally. I mean, is that how they would have dressed for just dinner at home? I don't know. Do they have dressing gowns? <laughs> <laughs> they, they they would sometimes um, dress for dinner at home, actually. As the, the Queen once said to uh, one of her prime ministers, her New Zealand prime minister, said, I am the last bastion of standards. So um, there was changing for dinner, but it's hard to tell whether this is the night of the party or, or the following evening. But it does suggest that the Queen and Prince Philip are eating very, very late um, because by now Charles and Camilla are already on the dance floor. One one thing I think it's worth pointing out is the music um, we've seen so far in this. It's 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 they've they've been very accurate to the to the period. I mean, from the opening scene where we've got uh, Diana and William driving through the countryside, singing, singing along to Chumbawamba and bursts of wham here and there. I seem to remember at the time. It was reported that the that the choice of music was more Radio Two than Radio One, and I think <laughs> I think we've seen that as well. They call her a loose cannon, an exhibitionist, off the rails. She may win the battle for attention, but that's not the same as the battle for sympathy. I don't want to go scouring and searching through the newspapers page after page for negative coverage of Diana. I want positive coverage of Mrs. Parker Bowles to be glaringly, screamingly obvious. Have I made myself clear? 
So we've just seen the Prince of Wales have a pretty heated discussion with his aides about respective press coverage between Camilla, who sort of gets warm coverage after the party, but Diana kind of splashing the front pages, looking racy in a swimming costume. And at the end, he's he's pretty brutal with his staff. And we do know that the now king has a bit of a temper. Anyone who saw him struggling with a sort of leaky fountain pen, I think it was in Northern Ireland last year, you know, saw that kind of fiery temper is there. But Robert, do you really think he would have spoken to his aides like that? Uh, no, I don't think it's seen ever happened at all. Yes, it's true. Um, the, the king has a temper, has always had a temper, as, as, as we all do. And he'd certainly, there'd be moments where he's made his displeasure clear to some of his AIDS, um, some of whom have talked about it, former AIDS have talked about it. But what this suggests is, you know, he, he, he's, he's talking about this is war. All you know, out he's, war. He's somehow waging a, a sort of media battle against Diana. I mean, one thing we know for sure is he didn't go in for these sort of tit for tat. Uh, he, he, he just wouldn't sit there poring over the sort of amount of space that Diana had in the paper versus the amount of space Mrs. Parker Bowles had. It, it wasn't like that. I mean, yes, of course, he had uh, he had his press team and his his spin doctors who would, you know, would certainly want to make sure that his side of any particular story came across. But, you know, I've heard numerous occasions where he's actually told people not to respond to whatever spin might be coming from, you know, what some might call the Diana side. The idea that he was saying, I want more headlines, I want more favourable headlines. He just wasn't into micromanaging the media at all. Um, I very much doubt that he even looked at those front pages there, let alone ordered people to turn them around. You know, this, this is a period where, as I've said already, he's just trying to normalise life with Mrs Parker Bowles. Um, there isn't some big overarching agenda. There isn't some grid map on the wall of, of what needs to happen. He just wants to make sure that, you know, they can lead as normal a life as possible at this stage. Your father could have used a bit of my father's. Traditional parenting. Complete and utter neglect. No. So when's the big day? It suddenly all seems a little crazy. Night before my wedding, I knew it was going to be a disaster. You still went ahead. But my face was on the tea towel, so I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> so we've just seen a, a, a sort of heart-to-heart between Dodie, fired, and the princess there, both lamenting their miserable childhoods both complaining about their fathers because we've seen Dodie clearly caught in a some dilemma with his fiancé and what his father wants him to do. And then uh, we've seen the Queen sort of thawing there, ringing up um, the Prince of Wales to say that she hoped he had a nice party. So I think both these scenes are obviously both totally imagined. We've absolutely no idea about the veracity of either of them, but what they're serving to do, I think, don't you think, Natasha, is just sort of nudge the plot forward a bit to show uh, Dodie and Diana bonding and to show the Queen and Charles coming a little closer together. Yeah, although, as you say, the Queen is still not smiling. Even when she's thawing out, she still looks so stern, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. And, and also uh, the idea that she had to ring up to find out what was happening with the boys, um, she would have known all that. I thought there was there's a slight sort of dig there at Charles where he sort of says, oh, I've got the boys coming, but I'm giving them to the nanny because mm. I'm busy. No, that's not the case. I mean, it was always the deal after the divorce that Diana would have 
the boys, when they left school in July, he would have them in August, and then they'd go back to Diana in September before they went back to school. Yes, uh, he talks about having a, a garden party for the Emir of Qatar. The Emir of Qatar was indeed in Britain that week. Um, he was there um, ready to see the Queen, not to see Prince Charles. There were meetings, there were engagements, that's what happens. The Prince's Council did meet that week, so did one or two other. I think the Prince had a meeting with his business leaders forum and, and went to see an exhibition at the Tate Gallery. I mean, this is what royalty does. But the idea that he was somehow offloading his sons onto somebody else because he couldn't be bothered to see them, I think that's not fair. He made very much made the most of the time that he had with them. Mm. And it contrasts with the scenes we saw earlier where Diana is shown to be so playful with the children and in comparison Charles is you know all sort of duty mm. and you know very sort of grown up and again that idea that the royal family are very very inherently cold yes Charles has bemoaned being kept outside the door when he was a little boy uh it, it you're absolutely right I think you know for for uh, particularly sort of viewers uh, around the world will be will be getting this sense of this this sort of heartless institution versus Diana the sort of free spirit and as we keep saying, it's a drama. <laughs> so you'll be on your own for the rest of the summer? That's all on my little notes. And... I don't like the sound of that. You're always welcome here. So we've just watched the concluding scene of the episode where Dodie and Diana and the boys are leaving sunny Saint-Tropez and return to London to a bouquet of flowers and a lavish gift, including a watch and an invitation for Diana to go to Paris next week that we presume is from Dodie. There's obviously a kind of looming sense of dread over this. Um, how did you find it? Yeah, it, it's setting the scene, obviously, very much for the tragic denouement we all know. I can't always help slightly feeling a sense of dread myself when I see um, Diana walking uh, back into Kensington Palace because it's all filmed, actually, at my old school. And that's like, it transports me back. I feel I'm on my way to a Latin lesson or something. Uh, but uh, no, it, it, what it's doing is very much pointing us some way down the track. The note in the box we saw at the end there saying, next week in Paris. Um, there's a there's a fair bit of ha stuff to happen before uh, before they get to Paris, uh, as I'm sure we'll see in the next episodes. So, Robert, what do you think? Is it a good start? It's it's the crown as we know and love it or don't love it. It's very very um, luxurious. It's very rich. Uh, it's in beautiful. Terms of, it is. It's stunning. The locations are fabulous. Perhaps <laughs> I think Britain looks a bit too rainy, but there we are. It's, it's set the scene for what I think will be a, a fairly tense episode too. Well, that brings us to the end of the first episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. If you've enjoyed listening, please do give us a five-star rating and a follow wherever you get your podcasts and even leave a friendly comment if you get a chance. It really makes a huge difference. The next episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction will be coming very soon. So from me, Natasha Livingston and Robert Hardman. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And thanks for listening. Thank you and goodbye. Everything I Know About Me is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. Of course you find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. And ashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant. And he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.